reading from verses 1 to verse 20. John the Baptist prepares the way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to this them all. He locked John up in prison. Well, I want to begin uh, by quoting the Pope. Now, if I'd done that 50 years ago, there'd have probably been a special church meeting. Um, but a very significant and amazing event took place at the Vatican just prior to Christmas. It's traditional for the Pope to uh, give a, a review of the past year to the Curia. The Curia um, are combined, uh, made up of cardinals, archbishops, and monsignors, the senior bureaucrats in the church. And so the invitation went out, the meeting was billed as an exchange of Christmas duty, uh, greetings, but the Pope chose to in fact um, reprimand publicly 
the senior bureaucrats of the church, and he listed a catalogue of 15 sins that he had observed among his staff during 2014. And he said he hoped uh, this would stimulate an honest examination of conscience to prepare hearts for the coming of Christmas. Now, I could have chosen to list the 15 sins of Muttley Baptist Church, but that's not the purpose. Uh, I want to list the sins that the Pope talked about. He talked about the sense of immortality among those who believe that they were beyond reproach. The Martharism, that's the Mary and Martha, Mary who prayed, Martha who worked. The Martharism of those who worked excessively, never stopping to pause and pray. He suggested the cure for an exaggerated sense of importance was to visit a cemetery and ponder the gravestones of those who thought the world could not manage without them. He challenged those who sought honor and rank and accused them of pride and worldly ambition. Those who gossiped and, and grumbled were sowers of discord like Satan. He challenged the employees who made idols of their bosses uh, and the bosses who encouraged this idolization to happen. He denounced the sickness of indifference to other people. He said there was an obsession with paperwork and good order that made them lose touch with real people. And he berated the sickness of the mournful face and said that being grumpy ran counter to the Christian value of joy. He said he prayed every day the prayer of Thomas More, which ends with the words, give me, Lord, a good sense of humor, allow me the grace to be able to take a joke and discover more joy in life and to be able to share it with others. Well, the Associated Press report said, you can imagine, the cardinals, archbishops, and monsignors were not amused by the speech. They sat in stony silence, very few smiles, and he spoke, and only tepid applause at the end. Friends, the Pope knows the world he's moving in. He knows the people that he's living amongst. He knew that God had given him something to say, and boldly he delivered that message. That really is the heart of what John the Baptist did. Both Pope Francis and John the Baptist were in the great prophetic tradition of knowing intimately the world in which they lived. And they also knew the sins of the people that lived around them, including their own. And they knew that God sometimes raises up messengers, prophets then and now, who all they have to do is to listen carefully to what God is saying, and then they deliver that message, not only from a pulpit, but in a home, in a workplace, in a hospital, in a school, a university, wherever the workplace is. And it's that prophetic tradition with which we open our new series. We're looking through Luke every Sunday morning between now and May, and the evenings are questions that get under the skin and do collect uh, one of the uh, sermon outlines. Mike Law opens tonight, uh, and uh, that's a good series that we're going to begin with. Let me mention also that we're beginning, I think it's on January the, uh, the, the 19th, at Costa Cafe uh, across the road, Muttley Plain, uh, Towards Belief. This is a series of 10 DVDs that have been made specifically uh, for people who believe that Christianity is uh, illegal, illogical, or irrelevant to 21st century living. And it deals with the blockers to belief. It may not be for you, but it may be for a family friend, 
a friend that you might want to bring along. So from the 19th of January, on a weekly basis, Costa Coffee Towards Belief, those leaflets are available there. So John uh, appears in Luke chapter 3, and Luke, who, remember, is the author of two massive books in the New Testament, the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, volume 1, volume 2. He chooses to begin in chapter 3 by naming seven political leaders. There's uh, one Roman emperor, one governor, there's three provincial rulers, like uh, regional leaders, and two Jewish high priests. Technically, you can only have one high priest. Annas had stepped down in AD 14, the high priest, and he simply ruled. He was the power behind the throne. So Caiaphas was the, the high priest, but really Annas was the power behind the throne. Why? Why begin with this list of almost unpronounceable names that make it difficult for a Bible reader on the first Sunday of January? For this reason, number one, he wants to give a historic date. And we know by looking at these names, we're talking about AD 28-29. That's just the moment that Jesus begins his three-year ministry. So you've got a historic date in mind. Secondly, he wants to remind us as readers what a turbulent political scene AD 28-29 was. Tiberius uh, Caesar had begun okay, but by the time in his final few years, he was mad, bad, and dangerous. And both at an empire level, emanating from Rome, and at a regional level, which is where John and Jesus were going to minister, there were terrible things happening, executions without trial, injustices which were regularly uh, meted down on people. And the ordinary people just felt so oppressed, they were crying out for somebody to deliver them from this political mess. So John wants to say, into this context, knowingly, John the Baptist first and then Jesus, they begin their ministry. And the third reason he names these seven political leaders, plus the religious leaders in that number, is he wants to say, this gospel of Jesus Christ is of global significance. We have our decorations up still because we remind ourselves this is Epiphany Sunday. All around the world, there would be those who will remember it's not so deep in our Baptist tradition, but many parts of the world, this is the moment they remember two things. One, the Magi coming from the east. They weren't part of the religious establishment. They weren't from Bethlehem or Jerusalem. They came from a thousand miles away to kneel at the cradle. And Luke and Matthew both see this and say, this uh, wonderful global significance of the gospel, when they kneel, those magi, it's as if the whole world is kneeling at the cradle of Jesus because the good news of the gospel is for the whole world. The baby who became a man will one day stand before he goes back to heaven and says, go into the whole world. So it's appropriate that we've had a, a message from China this morning. This is not some hole-in-the-corner thing for those who are living in Plymouth and you know, like a little bit of religion in their lives, this message we preach is of global significance. So those are the three reasons why he names these political leaders. And, uh, of course, they're of um, relevance today. This is January the 4th, 2015, a real moment in time. We've entered a new year when, politically, it's never been so uncertain. A general election that the brightest political pundit cannot read as to what kind of world we will uh, uh, be alert to in the first week of May. It's a dangerous world. 
We may have trident, we may have uh, a diminishing number of forces to protect us, etc., etc. Two or three crazy people who've got somehow the wrong idea about religion in their minds. They can cause mayhem on the streets of the United Kingdom. Never has the church of Jesus Christ been so diminished in the Middle East as it is now. You heard me say about uh, Mosul in northern Iraq, where there's been a Christian witness since the third century. This was the first Christmas the church bells fell silent in Mosul. ISIS came in, as you know, and just uh, offered Christians the option, recant or die. Recant your faith in Jesus Christ and turn to, to Islam. And of course, thousands left. Some of those people on that ferry that was left rudderless, well, not rudderless, but no crew on board, they were refugees fleeing from Syria. I would have thought it's, it's odds on that there would be Christians among them. We're living in a world where there's a demoralized public services. We're wondering financially how we're going to afford it. And, and all I'm saying is that just as John and Jesus began their ministry in a real moment of time, with political pressures eating into them. That's where we are. We're in a good place. Just as God didn't leave the world without witness, and up came John, the prophet, prepare the way of the Lord, and then Jesus, God's son. The promise of God is he never leaves his world without a witness. And the third thing is this is of global significance. People may want to consign the church and its message to the dustbin of history, but we're going to be around until Jesus comes again. Not a promise that Muttley Baptist will be around again. When he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it doesn't mean a specific church. It means the witness of God's people in this world. There will be a witness, alive and well, and kicking, until Jesus comes again. So here we are. We've, we've come to this beginning of the year, even as John came to the beginning of his ministry. And we're on the, the cusp of Jesus being baptized, and then he launches into his ministry. So where does John choose to link, as it were, this man, John the Baptist? Well, first of all, he says that when people were looking for a word of deliverance, they didn't find it in the palaces or the places of power, they found it in the desert. The word of the Lord came to John in the desert, and the desert was deeply symbolic for the people of Israel because in the desert, God had led them and met them and given them commandments and shaped them to be the people they were. In the desert, John the Baptist heard the call. In the desert, Jesus uh, was there before he commenced his preaching ministry in Nazareth. Desert's a good place to be. We're setting aside this week desert times. We're saying, take time. Your, your normal week is so busy we're all Marthas. Let's be Marys as well this week. Let's pray. Let's come here on Wednesday. Let's go to a house group meeting, even though we don't normally go. Let's get up early and come at 7 o'clock. Let's go on the prayer walk. Because desert places are places of revelation. They're places where God speaks. They're places where you can hear the word coming through. And John was in the desert and heard the word of the Lord. And Luke, as he draws his gospel, he's a magnificent writer, Dr. Luke. He goes to Isaiah 40, one of the most poetic chapters of the Old Testament. That was the Isaiah vision. Comfort, comfort Jerusalem. It was given to exiles because they never dreamt there would be a road back home. And 
Isaiah, the prophet, says, yes, there is going to be. Be of good comfort, because God's going to prepare a way in the desert that will bring you back home. You'll have your part to play in this. Isaiah 40 begins with comfort Jerusalem and ends with those who wait upon the Lord. They will rise up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. It's a great chapter. And Luke delves here. And as he reads Isaiah 40, he realizes this perfectly fits John the Baptist. You see that there's been silence for 400 years. If you go to the back of the Old Testament, the last book is Malachi. Malachi writes his book and it's finished and then 400 years of silence. No prophets, no Elisha, no Elijah, no Isaiah, no Jeremiah, no Hosea. List them all. Silence. And then suddenly John the Baptist steps onto the world stage. And he's the one that Luke sees is fulfilling the words of Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The image that John was given goes back to the days when the king would say, I'm going to visit that region. And the word went out, the king is coming, you need to mend the road. So potholes needed to be filled in, every valley needed to be made low. And mountains needed to be reduced. And the crooked places needed to be straight. And you didn't want anything, you wanted a smooth path for the king's chariot to come down. Because the king is going to come without fail. And he must come down that road without difficulty, without any hindrance. So prepare the way of the Lord. And Luke sees that John's ministry is like the road mender. Really, God can only provide a road down which the King Jesus can travel. But people have a part to play. And John knew he had a part to play. He was the one who had to stand up and say, the King is coming. Not so much mend the roads, but mend your hearts. And so he comes with his message. Well, I'll tell you what, we're thinking about a senior pastor next week. You wouldn't want John as your senior pastor. All this fire and brimstone. We're more more used to PR pastors. You know, come and have a a cream tea. Shall we have lunch together and let's have a chat? My word, this this guy, it's it's a fierce lashing of the audience with words. But don't be surprised, because open your Bibles, if you like, at the Old Testament, and John's got one foot there, and then turn to the New Testament, and the other foot is there. There's no other prophet like this. He's the one who stands with a foot in both Testaments. He's like a bridge person. And so if you do sometimes feel, oh, it's not very New Testament, but he's not meant to be. He's the one who carries all the tradition of the Old Testament, prepare the way of the Lord. The one that you said was coming, he's here. And it's grace and truth that will come through Jesus Christ. And John clearly points to Jesus Christ. And so his message, really, is drawn from those wilderness years. He looks at the people and said, well, your lives are like a wilderness. Empty, unproductive, fruitless. And he draws on images in verse 7, it's snakes. As a desert man, he knows that if the sun rays suddenly get a bush alight and another bush alight and eventually there's a part of the desert that comes alight. Snakes appear from everywhere. They don't cease to be snakes. They're scurrying away from the flames. And this brood of vipers, this preacher says, he's saying to them, you can't behave like snakes fleeing from the flames. Because what's coming in the person of Jesus 
is a fiery judgment that you will not be able to uh, escape. You will run, but you won't be able to hide. He then picks up in verse 8 another image. He knew that some of them somehow believed that because of all the heritage behind them, my grandma was a Christian, my great-grandma was a Christian, and I can trace my heritage all the way back to Abraham. And I was dedicated in the temple in Jerusalem. And I can tell you the Ten Commandments off by heart. And I know all the Old Testament stories. And he comes down and he says, look, you can't behave like this. Simply because of a heritage that is deep and godly, that in itself, if there's no fruit on the tree, you may be a tree, but it's meant to be fruitful. And what will happen, he says, is that the axe, he could already see it, not his axe, but God's axe is coming to the root of the tree that is called formal religion and it's going to be cut down. And Jesus would have harsh things to say about those who were religious leaders, and it failed. So no wonder the people come at the end of all this. Some of them would have walked away and said, we don't like that kind of preacher, as they do nowadays. But instead they come and they say, what do we do? They said that on the day of Pentecost. And in fact, that phrase, what should we do, what do you want us to do, is a a recurring theme throughout Scripture. It's not for this morning, though. Now, here's the point. We're about to embark on an important week in the life of Muttley, culminating in next weekend. In fact, culminating on Tuesday the 13th. As Mike has indicated, in our Baptist tradition, we don't know how the Lord will lead us. It may be that, uh, for whatever reason, on either side, either the pastor coming or ourselves, We don't feel there is a call involved in this. We then have to prepare ourselves for another moment like this. But I can say to you, and I think you would agree with me, this is an important year. It's a year when King Jesus, who has been the head of this house for all the years we've been in existence, and sometimes we've been closer to him than at other times. But there needs to be a road prepared down which the king can travel. He wants to come in fullness into the life of the church. He wants to come in fullness into our personal lives, our business lives, our neighborhood lives. And so we say, Lord, how do we do this? What kind of road is it that you want? And I think from these verses we can see that the first road that he wants is a repentance road. First thing he says when the people said, what should we do? He said, God wants practical repentance, thoroughgoing practical repentance. Now, John might have said, what I want you to do is read your Bibles more, pray more, come to church more, give generously, work for the church more. The context for what he says in verses 11 to 14 is the workplace and the neighborhood. To the first group of people, he says, share your food and clothing with one another, be open-handed in generosity. That's a neighborhood thing. The second group he speaks to are tax collectors. They were among the most despised profession. And you would think he might say, well, the sooner you leave that job and get a righteous job, the better. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't leave your jobs. He says, do your job honestly. Why? Well, when you come to Luke chapter 19, you have that great story of Jesus visiting the house of the most despised person in the community, a tax collector called Zacchaeus. And Jesus knew that when salvation came to Zacchaeus' house, a whole community could be blessed economically. 
People's lives were transformed because Zacchaeus' life, tax collector, had been transformed. That's the transforming power of the gospel. Easy to say, drop that terrible job you're doing and find something better. But to say to a tax collector, stay where you are and do what you're doing honestly. And then soldiers, these weren't Roman soldiers, they were probably soldiers in the employment of the uh, religious authorities. But they had the ability to intimidate the population. Yes, they were poorly paid, and how did they make up their pay packets? By taking bribes. By intimidating poor people who were defenseless. Argue with a, a, a soldier, you could be locked up. That's why he says to them, be content with your pay. Don't extort money from the population. It's immensely practical. All spiritual advance, says Tom Wright, begins with a turning away from what is hindering obedience. All spiritual advance begins with a turning away from what is hindering obedience. Obedience was being hindered in the workplace. Tim Keller um, has a new edition of his great book, Every Good Endeavor, connecting your work to God's plan for the world. I know that Rob and others are, are following the London Institute's uh, uh, fruitfulness on the front line, which is another way of seeking to take the gospel through believers into the workplace. But the book of Keller is full of practical examples of repentance where people, believers, change, then they transform their worlds. This is a social transformation message. It isn't a message of how to improve your prayer life. It's how to be more like Jesus in the workplace and so bless those who work with you. He cites, quoting recently deceased Tim, um, Sir Fred Catherwood, known to the older members here but not to younger members, but a hugely important evangelical Christian working at the very heart of business and government in earlier years. Catherwood years ago, and it hasn't changed, cites corruption as one of the greatest challenges for economic development and political stability in many parts of the world, where bribery is routine. I remember one of my first overseas visits was to Zaire to take a BMS uh, missionary retreat. Visited many of the hospitals, Pimu, Kimpese, and discovered... Bribery then was rife, as it is in all parts of the world, including the UK, that missionaries refused to pay bribes to the customs, even though there were much-needed drugs that they needed in there for the work of their hospital. They refused to do it. They belonged, it wasn't in existence then, to Transparency International. Christians who just said, not going to do it, not going to happen. Keller points to those who believers who pride themselves in the workplace on never taking a bribe, but they look the other way when others do. That's not in the prophetic tradition. The prophetic tradition, as John the Baptist showed, is you not only do it yourself, but you make sure those who are doing it are challenged, whatever the cost. Talks about the car salesman in his church who, who was concerned about car uh, price fixing in the showroom how a system favoured the wheeler dealers who could beat you down. And sometimes it left the poor and ill-educated left out. So this car um, salesman 
he owned the showroom, so he was able to take this decision. He put out there will be a flat rate for the cars that are sold here, no, no negotiations. He conducted a survey among members in his congregation working in the field of medicine. And he said to them, what is it in your world that makes life difficult for you? What are your temptations and trials? And what came back was how easy it is to lose your identity in your profession. He quoted from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had previously been a preacher, as you know, was a successful physician in London. Lloyd-Jones said this, There are many whom I've had the privilege of meeting whose tombstones might well bear the grim epitaph, Born a man, died a doctor. The temptation is for medicine to take over your life and rule your life as an enslaving power. It's a subtle one. Because there's a kind of moral ego massage, because you're giving so much hours, responsibility, stress. A lot of self-justifying power in that idolatry. He said it's much easier to feel superior as a doctor than as a banker. Another doctor, it's easy to become extremely cynical about people and emotionally hardened to life because you see so much mess of life and death. And the same doctor, only if Jesus stays real to the heart can you be consistently joyful enough in him to avoid making medicine your whole self-worth. I can't take you on the journeys some of you need to go on. What I do know is in the light of what Jenny shared about being totally transparent before God in her particular area of life. And the way we're being led through this passage to show that, that repentance was biting hard in the workplace to tax collectors, to soldiers, to people living in the community. If we truly want as a church to have a road down which King Jesus may travel, then serious thoroughgoing repentance in practical ways, is what the Lord is asking us to do. He has a lovely quote from Dorothy Sayers about carpenters. It's in a context of a ministry of competence. Whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Dorothy Sayers, the church's approach to a carpenter often exhorts him not to get drunk and be faithful attending church regularly. What the church should be telling the carpenter is the first demand of your faith is you should be making great tables. God never made junk, so we shouldn't make junk. When he looked out on all that he had made, he said, that's good, that's the standard, that's the benchmark for that repentance road. There's a second road, and that's the reform road. That begins in verse 15. The people were expectant, were all wondering. They were looking at John and thinking he might be the Christ. I felt there was a word there for Mutley, just in this phrase, as we enter an important year. Always look beyond the messenger to the person he represents. Those of you who are members will read either by letter or on email. You'll read a profile of a person. Say to the Lord, Lord, help us to look beyond the humanity of this gifted person. And help us to see and hear Jesus speaking through that person. Because that's what John does. When people come and say, well, maybe you're, you're the Christ. No, no, no. no you, I, I point you away from me. He is infinitely greater than me and not even worthy to tie his sandals. But he's not only infinitely greater than me as a person, he is immeasurably superior to me in his ministry. Why? 
well, I'm only a messenger. I'm only a messenger. I have to point all of you this morning to Jesus because his ministry is immeasurably greater than any human being who stands here. John knew that he could do water baptism, but only Jesus could do Holy Spirit baptism. And he picks up those images again regarding this infinitely superior Jesus, the one who alone can bring the reform and renewal that we need in our lives for life here at Mutley, for life in the wider community. What's that ministry? It's a wind and fire and axe ministry. It's the wind of the Spirit. And he uses the agricultural term, and some of us who've been to Israel will know they'll create this for you, as from the first century. The winnowing fork went into a a stone floor, and it would pick up wheat and chaff together. But you don't want wheat and chaff together. You just want wheat. So you throw the wheat in the air, and the wind blows. The wheat is solid and falls to the ground, and the chaff is blown away. So we're saying in this week of prayer at the beginning of this important year, Lord Jesus, whose ministry is infinitely superior to any of ours, come with your winnowing ministry. We're prepared to be shaken in order that pure wheat can fall to the ground and the chaff be blown away. You do understand that the purpose of this infinitely superior Jesus ministry of reform, this reform road that needs to be built, is he wants a harvest. This isn't just a fire and brimstone people person trying to frighten the people. He actually wants fruitfulness at the end of this process. So yes, Lord Jesus, come with that winnowing ministry. Let the wind blow away the chaff. What happens to the chaff? It's a fire ministry. It's burnt. We're actually prepared to say personally and corporately, as that winnowing takes place, the heavy wheat falls to the ground, the chaff is cast to one side. What I thought was precious in my life is in fact to be burnt. It's to come under the fire of your godly discipline, the fire of your judgment. Are we prepared for that? Times in my life when I didn't realize I'd made an idol of something. Times in my life when I've, I've clung to something. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a group of people. Sometimes it's a ministry. Sometimes it's a title. Sometimes it's a geographical location. Winnowing means that we allow everything to go up in the air. Blow away, Lord, that which is chaff in my life and let just solid wheat fall to the ground because that wheat will produce a harvest. And the axe? Well, when you read it, it looks as though John is exercising the axe ministry, but it's not him. It's the axe of the Lord. And the axe of the Lord comes to every tree that is fruitless. Do I want to be a fruitless church, belong to a fruitless church? Do I want to belong to a fruitless organization, department? It's a painful thing when I've given my life to something and the Lord comes and says, I'm really sorry. There was fruit, but there's no longer fruit. So the tree has to come down. But it's done in order that more fruit might come. And it's not as though my life has been cut down. He, he moves me somewhere else. He moves me to another orchard where there is abundant fruit. As one of my mates used to say, you could walk through the orchard in such a way that as you walked by, the fruit fell off the tree. It was such a harvest. You didn't have to pick it, just that gentle wind of the Spirit. Don't we want to be in those places which are immensely fruitful? And Lord, if it means an axe to a tree that I call sacred, whatever that tree may be, then you come because you're the reformed Lord. 
So there's a repentance part of the road and there's a reform part of the road. And again, we've run out of time, but there's a revolution part of the road and that's verse 19. The revolution is that John didn't just confine himself to talking to people who'd asked for baptism. He actually came to the highest places in the land. He came to Herod. Herod's marital life was a mess. And Herod, nobody was able to say this to him. They were all frightened for their lives. John wasn't. John came and he said, your married life is a mess. The person that you're married to, she's a Jezebel, Herodias. And she needed to be told this and Herod needed to be told this and there were other things. That's what the Bible says there, doesn't it? And all the other evil things that had been done. John piled them all up, loaded them on Herod. And what did Herod do? Well, in this version of the gospel, he imprisoned John. Later on, we know John lost his life. That takes courage to be a a prophet who says in the very highest places. There has to be a revolution here. God won't call all of you to do it. It may not be a message for Muttley. It may be a message for the world in which you move. But the prophetic tradition is to be a courageous radical and say there needs to be a revolution starting here with me. One of my favorite films over Christmas, you may have seen it after Christmas, was The Help. The story of uh, 1960s Jacksonville, Mississippi. My first visit to the States was in the 1960s when I met raw racism and uh, it shocked me. And you'll know how uh, this lady, uh, Miss Hilly Holbrook, is deeply racist. She is a symbol for the whole culture of segregation. It all involves black maids and, uh, and their just rights. And because uh, Abilene, the slave working in Hilly's house, uh, is really upsetting her because she's not towing the line. She accuses her falsely of stealing cutlery. And it's simply a, a pretext for getting rid of Abilene. And Abilene is not passive. She's in the spirit of John the Baptist. She comes right up face to face. If you've seen the film, you'll remember. And she looks at her owner in the eye and says, Mrs. Holbrook, you're a godless woman. And she adds these words. Ain't you tired, Mrs. Holbrook? Ain't you tired? If God inspires you to cause a revolution in the workplace by whatever issue you're facing, you will be given the courage, even as Abilene was given the courage, to face down godlessness and to recognize that perhaps in all that's taking place, there is a weariness. I've known people who have taken courage in all hands. They knew it could cost them their job, but they've gone in and they've said, this is godless. John did it. It cost him. You may be called to do it, and it'll cost you. But down this new road will come King Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. Come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly.